together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we were slated to go eight all the way through ten, and I know that sounds ambitious. It was ambitious. I'm not doing that. We're going to stay in chapter eight today. But the reason why is because it's hard to draw lines in the book of Revelation when the vision just keeps going. Okay, so um, I didn't want to cut off these seven trumpets that we're going to begin today in chapter 8. But we'll just be in the, in the larger portion of chapter 8, 1 through 12 this morning. Uh, but to, to set the table, I want to remind us that it is really difficult to receive what Revelation is offering. It's, it's difficult to pick up what Revelation is putting down if we approach the book of Revelation from a comfortable Christianity, if we approach the book of Revelation from a compromised Christianity, where we see the world as great, not, I mean, there's some things we wish went better, but day to day, we live our lives and we're not bothered, we're not hampered, we're, we're okay. This is written to Christians that are experiencing persecution. This is written to Christians that are suffering at the hand of the world because they stick up for Jesus in a world that hates Jesus and they suffer for it. That's the perspective. Now, we have brothers and sisters around the world that are in that now. And we don't have to only think about them all over the world, but we can think about ourselves. Why don't I experience pressure? Is it because I dodge it by being a comfortable Christian. I don't want to rile anybody up. I don't want to get into any arguments, so let me just keep my religion to myself. Or a compromised Christianity that gets that comfort through kind of being like the world, right? And we saw that in the seven letters. Syncretism, being like the world, and just kind of mixing some Christian things with some other things that you want to kind of put together, which they did all the time in the Old Testament, and God rebuked them for it, right, Israel? Comfortable Christianity or a compromised Christianity is just going to look at the book of Revelation like you're reading Nostradamus. Like you just, you're just interested in what's coming next. So you can, whatever, protect your investments or change your retirement plan or whatever. But this is written to Christians that are suffering. And this expects that as a Christian, you will lean into a life of suffering, not dodge it. Not necessarily go looking for it, starting trouble but recognizing that if you stick up for Jesus in a world that opposes Jesus, the world will oppose you. And this is written to encourage you there. This is not written to figure out timelines. This is written to encourage you with events that you experience as a Christian in a world that hates Christ. So with that in mind, let's see how this passage encourages Christians explaining to them that when they suffer, that suffering prompts prayer. Okay, if I'm not going to. If I were to show hands, who's been praying a lot lately? And I see hands up, and who's not been praying a lot lately? And then the next question is, who's been going through a hard time and who's having it kind of easy right now? It might be kind of the same hands. Suffering prompts praying. And this message is to Christians. They're suffering at the hand of the world, and they're like, God, do something. And this passage, chapter 8, is to encourage Christians, those prayers do not fall on deaf ears with God. God doesn't ignore those prayers. He doesn't go, hmm, you know. He's not deaf. He listens, 
and he responds. It might surprise you how. Let's look at chapter 8 as we begin uh, this section on the seven trumpets. We'll start with just the first six verses. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. We'll pause there because there's, there's a lot to unpack. You remember the scene where the, the scroll is sealed with seven seals and no one can open it because no one has the right to judge the world and no one has the right to stick up for the saints except for the Lamb who paid for the condemnation for the saints and has the authority to enact the condemnation on the world that opposes the saints. So he rises and he starts opening the seals. Pop, pop, pop. He's a one at a time. And as those seals are opening, we're seeing the four horsemen. That's the first four seals. We're seeing these judgments uh, uh, laid out on, on the earth. You remember seal five, the, the saints are praying, oh, Lord, what are you going to do about this? Seal number six was this earth-ending cataclysmic event. It's over. So we see the sort of successive, like there's judgments, judgments, judgments. The final judgment is over, right? Now, the seventh seal opens, which introduces seven trumpets that don't happen next. But now we're going to see what we saw with the seals from a different angle. Okay, this wasn't in my notes, but I've been meaning to share this with you, all right? There's a couple of good movies. They're directed by Clint Eastwood. I think both of them are. And uh, I'm probably going to blank on the title because I'm freestyling this. But Letters from Iwo Jima was one. Flags of Our Fathers was the other. They are both covering the same exact events. One from the perspective of the Japanese soldiers and leaders. The other movie, Flags of Our Fathers, the same exact events from the perspective of the United States leaders and soldiers. Same battle and everything. There's some battle scenes where you're like, I remember that battle scene, but when I saw it before, the the cameras were in the trenches, and now that I'm watching this movie, the camera's up here with the guys attacking the trenches. Does that make sense? Same movie, same event, two different angles. They're both great movies. This is what we're getting here. He sees the opening of the six seals, and then he's not saying, after seal number six and the earth is totally destroyed, now we're going to see these things happen, and if you'll... Follow with me as we go through. You'll see that that doesn't make sense. But rather, the camera angle is swinging around, and you're seeing it again from a different angle. So as he opens the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. What is that about? Well, obviously, half an hour is a long time of silence. Uh, At communion, we paused probably for 30 seconds, and for some of you, maybe it felt like three minutes. Or It always feels longer for me up here. I'm like, was that long enough? I don't know, because it feels longer. It's subjective, but this is a long time to pause. Uh, Again, finding our answers in the Old Testament, 
Silence is something that uh, would precede God's judgments. We don't have these on the screen. I apologize for that, but you can just listen briefly. Three brief passages. Habakkuk 2, verse 10. Habakkuk 2, uh, 20, I'm sorry. But the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So Habakkuk is connecting. God is rolling up his sleeves, and he's holy, and he's not going to mess around with this. So it's a connection to judgment, and the announcement of that judgment is silence. Everyone be quiet, okay? Like It's like the Lord is approaching the podium, and everyone's quieting down because he's about to usher something. Zephaniah 1.7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Silence, then judgment. Zechariah 2.13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Uh-oh, right? So now he's, he's roused, and he's about to do something. He's about to take action. Be silent, because here it comes. And so with that as our background, those are just some samples. This is what's happening here with the silence, uh, because these trumpets are about to sound And this roused God is about to respond to the prayers of the saints. Verse 2, then I saw seven, the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So we were introduced to these seven trumpets, and we'll get back to that in a second because that's what's going to basically control the imagery of of chapter 8 going into chapter 9. We'll get to that in a second, but what is going on with the incense stuff? Okay, If you remember back when we went through Exodus, back when we went through Leviticus, uh, uh, you're in your quiet times in the Old Testament and there's priests and there's censers and there's altars and there's incense, okay? The incense would represent God's people's prayers, right? So you would burn the incense as the fragrant smoke rises. It symbolizes our prayers going up to the Lord and it's fragrant, so it, it's pleasing to the Lord and it's connected with the altar and sacrifice so that we know we have his ear because we have access to him through sacrifice. So all those images are pressed together with the altar, the incense, the smoke rising up. I'll just help you by giving you a couple verses there. Psalm 141 says, verse 2, let my people be counted as incense, or let my prayer, I'm sorry, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Prayer is incense, going up to the Lord. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, so what is the incense? The incense is the fragrance of uh, the, peop- uh, the saints' prayers going up to God, right? So this is an a artistic way of showing how prayers get to God, all right? They didn't have phone lines, they, you know. They're just, think of how smoke rises. Imagine it continuing to rise and it's a pleasing smoke. It's a fragrant smoke. The Lord likes it. He wants it and he receives it. Okay? And that's what the image is, the incense. So here you have the angel sort of delivering these prayers to the Lord. They, they effectively get to God. He receives those prayers. And they are the prayers offered by the saints. You see that in verse 3. 
The incense is offered with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, verse 4, with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. These are not prayers for new cars. These are not prayers for a handsome boyfriend. These are prayers in connection with what? What Revelation is all about. What is Revelation all about? Pressure on saints by a world that oppose those who made them saints. That's what Revelation is all about. These, these are not random prayers. And I'm not saying God doesn't listen to all kinds of prayers, but let's stick with the theme of Revelation. These prayers are going up from hurting saints, churches with pressure on them. Those prayers make it to God. God then receives that, gives the angel permission, so to speak, to take the coals that are, that are producing that incense, throw them in the, in the censer, those burning coals or the, the fire that produces that smoke, and then he looks at the earth and dumps it on the earth. Okay. So we see a connection between the prayerfulness of the saints and the fire that gets rained down on the earth. Does that boggle your mind just a little bit? How many of you grew up reading Revelation? Wow, scary stuff. Did you ever consider that is in response to Christians praying it in? Yikes. But look at it. The prayers are offered to God. God receives it. And then the angel takes those coals, dumps it on the earth, and then the trumpets are going to sound to explain to us what he's dumping on the earth. Otherwise, it's like, wow, cool verse about prayer. Next, total other theme, judgment. No, not next. The prayers prompt the judgment. That's weird. That's a weird category for prayer. If you, if you keep a prayer journal, you might have a section on the people you're praying for in your life that don't know the Lord. You pray that they get saved. You have a section on your career and you're praying that you do well and that you're honest and you do that career with integrity. You have a section on church. Something like that, right? How many of us, if we did that, would have a section on judgment? God, judge this world. That's, I've not had a lane like that. But as I'm moving through Revelation, I'm going, I, I think this is assuming that we pray in that lane. And maybe the reason why I don't pray in that lane and I don't have a section like that in my journal is because I don't have family members close to me that have been beheaded for serving Christ. Maybe I'm a little too comfortable to pray like that. But we see that they do pray like that. And as John delivers this revelation to the churches, you've got people hurting, and they cannot wait for God to do something about the problem. And we're going to see this theme again and again as we move through the book of Revelation. The censer is full of those fiery uh, incense producing coals and it's thrown on the earth from the altar and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. I'll spare you but there's so many verses we can go to. to again, the, as silence pr- sets the table for God's judgment, 
earthquakes, lightning. Remember they told Moses, we can't hear from this God. We'll all die. You go talk to him and then come back. And some of that scary stuff that made them say that was exactly this. The mountain shaking, the earthquaking, lightning, thunder, etc. Now, we enter this theme of trumpets that were introduced in verse 2. Seven trumpets were given to these angels. And then verse 6, now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Now they're prepared to blow them because the prayers of the saints have been received. Understand? Now they're ready to go. And these seven trumpets are, again, this Old Testament theme of trumpets announcing. (laughs) That's what trumpets do. Here we go. Here he is. Here we are. Okay? Trumpets announcing what? What this whole passage, the entire table that's being set here. What silence was the... What silence was introducing, God's judgment. What the earthquakes and lightning was introducing, God's judgments. And the trumpets going, do-do-do-do, is saying, here it is. You'll remember maybe seven trumpets that were blown in the Old Testament as Israel marched around Jericho, this fortified city. And when the seven trumpets blew, the city walls came down and they were able to, what, besiege the city and take uh, the promised land. And I think there's echoes of that here where you've got God's people looking toward the new earth, but the opposition isn't a physical city with physical walls necessarily, although you can kind of see Rome that way. And and Revelation talks about Babylon, but you can fill in the blank of Babylon with Rome or any other city that oppresses God's saints. And this is God saying, just as I provided defeat of Jericho for my people to take the promised land, you will not ultimately lose here. You will not be oppressed and persecuted to the point of not receiving my promises. You will receive my promises because I will defeat the foes. I will defeat the enemies. So as each trumpet blasts, God is demonstrating judgment that he sends on the earth. Okay, Judgment that he sends on the earth. And we're going to read those judgments in just a moment. But first, clarification. Because this is where we get confused. If you're thinking in the back of your mind, which trumpet are we on right now in 2023? You're, you're over here in this lane of how to read Revelation, and I'm preaching this thing out of, way over here. I'm not over there. And so if you're going, man, we're in chapter 8. I still don't know where we are here. We're everywhere here. We're everywhere here. As I explained when the four horsemen went out, are we still waiting for a plague to hit the earth? Are we still waiting for a bad economy? Hello? <laughs> and it's just like us to be so self-centered that every generation when we experience something, we're like, this must be it. That guy, that bad dude must be the Antichrist. You know, COVID must be the, that plague. The economic hardship that's brought in by this president is the, the scales. Man, everybody has said that. In every generation. Now, you might ask, well, what's the difference now than before Christ? I'm not a historian, but I'm guessing that the increased population, the increased cities, the increased powers are different A.D. than B.C. The amount of plagues, the amount of earthquakes, the tsunamis just turn on the news. I don't know if it's just that we have faster access to see it going on or 
And I'm not going to call it global warming and unpack that entire thing, but global weirding. <laughs> and I'm not saying it's because there's too many cows and pastures, too many, too many cars on the roads. I'm just saying, I, I think we can recognize there's some weird stuff going on. Weird viruses, weird temperatures, weird lots of things. Okay, and the increasing of wars and rumors of wars has been increasing since the time of Christ, as he said. But we have Christians that are like, no, 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 this is basically peace. And then in the end, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Have you read a history book? This is why it's so confusing. We see Revelation as predicting the future. We look around us and we see it happening now. And you've got some Christians going, it must happen now. And then the rest of us are like, but it can't happen now because it was supposed to happen in 1988. It was supposed to happen in 1948. And then we start getting discouraged. Like, I don't want to read the book of Revelation because it sounds like it's promising something that isn't happening. No, you're reading it wrong, perhaps. Rather than asking which trumpet are we in, I think, or which horseman is on the loose right now, which seal is being opened, I think the better question to ask is how are we supposed to respond living in a world that has uh, these judgments ravishing it? How should we live in a world that looks like that? What should our perspective be? So as he begins the seven trumpets, I don't think he's starting a whole new theme. The seals already happened. Now the trumpets are going to begin happening after the seals already happen. I don't think that makes sense. I think these are the same prayers that we saw in chapter 6. Seal number 5 was the prayers of the saints. Now the trumpets, like the seals, answer those prayers. I don't think that in seal number 6, the earth was destroyed. We got a new earth, and then now the trumpets are happening again, and then the earth will be destroyed again. How many times is the earth going to be destroyed? How many times does Jesus come back? No, he comes back one time, raptures them in secret, then he comes back again, takes over, but then Satan is let out, and then Jesus has to come back again, so to speak, and take out Satan. It's like three or four comings of Christ. That's why the timelines were so unmemorizable growing up, I think. I know I, I, these are legit Christians, man. You know, I just, I feel like I have to explain this because some churches leave church, some Christians leave churches over this. You don't get the timeline right, they leave. We've actually experienced that here, not a lot. But some people get so vested in, it has to be in order. This has to happen, John says, and then I saw this, so that has to happen next. Let me explain it to you this way. John is being brought into a vision. Not, not like, a, what's the, the Charles Dickens, uh, where he's brought to the past and the future and he's, He's not there, but he's seeing it, right? The, the Christmas story. Um, I should just leave that out. Edit that out. That's terrible. <laughs> Scrooge, thank you. That's not what's happening here. Scrooge is being shown. He's, he's in real time seeing events happening. This is more like, imagine um, you're at the Art Institute of Chicago and you see this beautiful painting and then like Mary Poppins, you kind of jump into the painting and now you're in the painting. And you're not seeing it in a frame in 2D. You're in the painting, and then someone is, you're on the phone with someone, and they're, they're out there still seeing it in 2D. They're like, what do you see? And you're like, well, I see this. Then I see this. Then I see that. You have to explain it one thing at a time because they're not in there with you. you. You're writing it down or explaining it, and you can only explain things one thing at a time. 
So when John says, then this, then that, then I saw, yes, he has to experience things one thing at a time as it rolls out. But you've got other pastors, preachers, Christians that say, well, when he says after this, that starts a new era. That starts the three and a half years of this or seven years of that. And I think that's pressing it too, too far. It's too far, and I don't think it works for us to say one trumpet happens, and once that's over, then the other trumpet begins because it's all happening all the time in this church age. I think you'll see that as we continue to look at it. Let's begin in verse 7. And we'll just look at the first four trumpets because the book of Revelation takes sevens and sets of four and three or three and four. So today we're going to do four. Remember the four horsemen were different than the other seals. The first four trumpets are kind of different. There's a little intermission and then you get the other three trumpets. So we're just going to do the four, which gets us through verse 12. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, And a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, And likewise, a third of the night. So we'll we'll pause there. We're going to pick up next week from 13 going forward because that's the intermission and then the the rest of the trumpets. So we've got these first four trumpets just like we had the first four horsemen. I think we're still in the same timeline. This is the church age. And he describes these judgments as the angel takes, because of the prayers of the people, he takes those coals, so to speak, the fire, and he throws it down on the earth. The trumpets blast showing us what's happening as God judges the earth on behalf of the prayers of the saints. And you've got these scary images, hail and fire mixed with blood that uh, destroy a, a third of the earth, the trees, a third of the trees, the green grass. You've got uh, trumpet number two with this weird imagery of something like, he says, a great mountain, something huge, big, like a big mountain uh, being thrown into the sea. But that mountain was burning with fire, and then the sea became blood. Uh, if, you, if you scorch water, does it turn into blood? You know, it's difficult to take these things as uh, literal. It's hard to see how hail and fire would be together mixed with blood before hitting the earth. Um, then the third angel blew his trumpet, verse 10. A great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on just a third of the rivers. But you remember in the seals, lots of stars fell on the earth. In seal number six, like a lot of stars, like figs, like dry figs blowing off a tree, stars fell on the earth. But this is another one. Or is it just describing events that are leading up to the great and final judgment? But this isn't the final one yet because it's a third, a third, a third. God is restraining. He's not going all in, boom, destroying everything yet. He's just rolling out judgments here, judgments there, destroying some, not all of everything. 
A great star falls from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it, it contaminates a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, so don't start, you know, Googling, is there a star out there named Wormwood? Because that's the one that's going to hit. It, it's symbolic. It's drawing on an Old Testament theme. All of this, all of this is, even the mountain falling into the water. It's, it's Old Testament judgment themes. And he's saying all the judgment that was promised in the Old Testament is going to come to fruition in the church age as the saints pray it in. But the water becomes bitter because of the wormwood. That's why it's called wormwood. It's the contamination of the waterways, the fresh waterways. And then the fourth angel uh, you know, the, it, it's going to the stars, it's going to the sky, a third of the, the sun, the third of the moon, a third of the stars, a third of the light is now darkened, a third of the day is kept from shining, and likewise, a third of the night. So we can stay here trying to do a PhD on this for many years, just trying to figure out astronomically what is this describing such that we only see the stars for two-thirds of the time and the sun only shines for two-thirds of the time. How does that work out mathematically with the moon, two-thirds? Or, and this doesn't mean judgments aren't real. For it to be symbolic doesn't mean judgments aren't real. If I say that bread is not the actual body of Christ, we're not like, don't take communion then, right? That's what the church has been arguing about for a long time. And some churches think, well, if, you, if it's just a symbol of his body, then it must not mean anything. But for many of us here, that's kind of ludicrous. It's very meaningful because it symbolizes something. So when I say these are symbols that we're not supposed to press into literalism, that we're not supposed to be able to identify which exact star that is, how the world can operate with only a third of, uh, uh, or two-thirds of the light available to us, what would it look like for only a third of waterways to be poisoned, you know, and, and mathematically try to work all that out or just say God is going to start rolling out judgments but in a restrained way, not full bore like he will in the end. Full bore is seal number six. But this is, this is like the horsemen. They're, they're going out to the four corners of the world, rolling out judgments on the world. So as John is seeing these, we can think of some questions that we pro- should probably address. One question is, are these judgments literal? And I, I want to say yes and no. Um, yeah, no, they're not literal because I don't think we're looking for a specific star and it's a mathematically a third and all that that I just explained. But yes, because I think this is speaking to natural disasters. It, it, it probably it has echoes of wars as well and I, we can spend 20, 30 minutes on that that a lot of this language in the Old Testament used of incoming war. Like people would come and take out a city and all that burning and all that destruction would wipe out a third of this, a third of that. They'd attack their vegetation and the smoke rising up would probably block the sun shining for a while. And so there's those kind of connections. It could be wars, it could be attacks, it could be terrorism, or it could be a lot of natural disasters. So I, is it literal? Yes. Is it literal in terms of timing and succession and an actual star doing this and... All that, I don't, I don't think so. I think this is happening now. I think this has been happening. I think it ratchets up as we continue moving through uh, this church age. So it's in a sense literal. The bigger question I have is, are, are the saints getting hurt in this too? 
I don't know I have the answer to that. And as I was praying about this this morning, I'm like, I, I think I'm preaching to a church that recognizes I don't have the answers to everything. I don't know. That's my problem with this passage. Many Christians have this problem. You've heard of pre-tribulation Christians, right? Christians that believe that there's going to be a great tribulation in the end. Stuff like this represents a great tribulation. Yeah, there's earthquakes and there's things now bad happening, but not like when the trumpets start blasting, that's a great tribulation. Are Christians going to be here in the great tribulation? Some Christians say, no, Christians can't be here in the great tribulation because God will spare his people from the judgments. And then other Christians are like, hey, that sounds pretty idiotic because Christians suffer around the world all the time. But let me just give some grace to our preacher brothers here for a second, okay? I think they have crazy timelines and charts and everything, but let's just, let me just allow some grace here and go, uh, when, when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, did he leave Lot in there or did he get them out? When God sent, sent his plagues on Egypt, did Israel suffer those plagues or did he protect them? So you do see this theme of, of judgment. And then, does it make sense for saints to say, Lord, do something about this persecution? And God's like, okay. And then he tsunamis the entire country, also drowning the Christians that prayed that God would attack the oppressing people that are killing them. Well, now you're not going to die at, at the hands of men wielding AK-47s. Now you're going to die from famine, all of you, or a third of you. I, I don't know the answer to that. I think God in his wisdom knows what he's doing. I don't want to step into an error, erroneous theology that believes that Christians don't suffer because we're not immune to disease. And if war breaks out, it's not like we can just stand out there in the middle of the street. Everyone else might get hit with bullets. But, you know, if we're walking, the tank will just go around us because I'm a Christian. That's, that's a kind of silliness that doesn't make, make sense with Scripture. But I do want to also protect the sense that these judgments are God's response to his suffering people. And whether some of those suffering people are involved in experiencing waves of that, or can God do like he did with Egypt, where people suffer certain things and Christians are in large part, in large part protected? I don't know. That's for the Lord to figure out. That touches on another difficult area. I need to bring this up. Before we wrap up, I don't think it's wise of us to go, look, honey, I saw in the newspaper this country is experiencing this famine. That's what those idolaters get, huh? Hey, look, hon, this country is experiencing whatever, this economic crash. That's what they get for their sins, huh? Maybe. But God is not rolling out Revelation two, second Revelation and showing us every disease is pinned to this. Every hardship is, is pinned to this. Every time there's a drought is pinned to this exact sin. Maybe, but we're not God. What is this passage here for? It's not here for us to be able to name every disaster and pin it to the sin that produced that disaster. But nor are we supposed to look at disasters and go, God is just asleep until the final trumpet and then God wakes up and does something. No, he's, a, he's, a, he's awake now. He's roused now. And he's enacting judgments on the world. If he decides a famine here, an earthquake there, that's his prerogative. And none of us can go, that country was so innocent, they shouldn't have had a tsunami. That country is so guilty, where's the tsunami? But what we do is we take our prayers 
the suffering that we experience, the pressures that we experience, we take it to God and we let God take care of it. You think of a child that's bullied at school and the child goes to the teacher or the principal and says, hey, every, every morning my lunch money is getting taken from me, I get punched in the face and now they're wanting me to bring more. Can you do something? And the teacher goes, well, what do you want me to do about that? Is that for the five-year-old to figure out? That's your job. You go do something about it. Now, you're either going to be the teacher or principal that's scared of the parents, scared of culture, scared of getting canceled, scared of not giving a trophy to a bully, and you don't do something about it, or you can be the teacher that knows and has the wisdom to do something about it and not ask the five-year-old for how to connect the dots. We're the five-year-olds. We're not here to tell God how to judge a nation, how to judge a country, how to judge persecutors. But we are supposed to take our complaints, our rightful complaints, and take them to God and put them in his lap and let him take care of it. Let him take care of it. This is a struggle that Christians have. When we read the Psalms, wow, you've got a glorious flowery Psalm that's about praise and glory to God. Rescue me, or you have rescued me. So many of the Psalms are beautiful. You you put me in peace. And then other Psalms are like, would you take their children and destroy them? And you're like, "Uh, skip it. Imprecatory Psalms, Psalms that are wrathful prayers. How do we pray those? Do we just go, oh, those are Old Testament weird stuff. Well, you get to the book of Revelation, it's one big, huge, imprecatory book. Because we're not supposed to pray, Lord... um, you know, uh, I know they're suffering saints, but um, never mind, I'm not going to pray. You know, just deliver them. I don't know, just, but I'm not going to pray against persecutors. No, you can. You can pray that God would enact his judgments on his timing, in his will, in his wisdom. Two applications for our prayers. One, should we pray for the rescue of persecuted Christians? Uh, some of you are like, well, yeah, we should. Well, I mean, we don't have the content of the prayers here, but some might say, well, we're not supposed to pray rescue. We're not supposed to be comfortable. We're supposed to be conquerors. We conquer in jail. We conquer by getting beheaded, and all that's true. But it's not like when Peter was in jail, they were just playing Monopoly, and they're like, well, you know, whatever. He's supposed to be in jail. And it's not like they started praying, Lord, would you execute him? Would you give him the honor of being executed? Would you kill him? We don't want to see Peter again. We want him to go to glory. They didn't pray that, right? So do we pray for rescue? Yes, we pray for rescue. We don't ask for trouble. We don't go looking for trouble. We pray for rescue. Second application is do do, do we pray for judgment? Yes, with a caveat, all right? I don't have all this worked out. I personally would feel uncomfortable praying exact judgment on an exact person, which we don't see in the Psalms. The Psalms pray generic judgment prayers, not, God, would you kill this guy? Kill this politician. Would you please give him a heart attack, please? You don't see that in Scripture. But what you do see in Scripture is general prayers. Lord, you see oppression. You see wickedness. Would you step in and do something about it? And I'm not sure we're supposed to worry about whether we'll catch anything for it. Right? If, if you live in a nation that deserves judgment, or you know people in a nation that deserves judgment, that doesn't mean you don't pray in judgment. God knows what he's doing. 
God knows what he's doing, but we do pray that God steps in and does something because he's not the teacher or principal that shoves stuff under the rug or some trustees have them in their pocket. God is for righteousness and judgment, and he receives the prayers of suffering saints like fragrant incense, and it doesn't fall on deaf ears. He steps in and does something about it. So when we turn on the news and we see destruction all over the world, we have a different perspective than other people. We can't pin it to specific sins, and we don't want to have to go there, but it's not like we don't have an answer. This world is under judgment, and that judgment is heightened in how the world treats Christians, God's people. And as God's people are mistreated, persecuted, oppressed, prayers go up, God, would you please do something? And God doesn't wait till the final day. He rolls out series of judgments here and there, measured, not full on, because full on is in the end, but he's involved now with the things that are happening in the world. And I think that should shape our prayers. It should change how we pray a little bit so that we can take these things, bring them before the Lord with a different angle to say, God, I'm not asking you to kill this person, kill that person, but you see the suffering saints. I'll turn you to two websites and then we'll close. One of those websites is Voice of the Martyrs, Voice of the Martyrs. The other website is Operation World. You can click on a country and see what the persecution level is What's happening there? Uh, what kind of persecution the Christians are experiencing there? One of my professors, when I was coming through Trinity, um, would lead his family in a devotional time. And one of the things they would do is move from one country to the next. Operation World used to put out a book. Now you can just go to their website. But he would go to the book and just go to the next page. Okay, now we've got Afghanistan. How many Christians are there? What kind of Christians are there? What kind of persecution is happening there? And this thing is updated all the time. And we can use that to pray for brothers and sisters around the world so we can join those saints in prayer going, Lord, how long? How long are you going to let your people get crushed by oppressors in this world? God has two answers to that, right? His first answer is when it's done, and it's not done yet. The second answer comes in chapter 8 where he's like, but that doesn't mean I'm waiting till it's done to do anything about it. I'm doing things now. And a lot of the things that we see that are look like punishments on this world, are. I'm in charge of that. I'm in charge of the where, the when, and the how. You keep praying, and I'll take care of judgment. Let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, as we turn on the news, we see mass shootings, and we see famines, and droughts, and hurricanes, devastating earthquakes, tsunamis. We see all this destruction. It's right for our hearts to be weighed down for people. We also understand that as a world, we reject you. Uh, We don't follow you. We're all idolaters. And uh, we're thankful that you don't just stand by and just do nothing, but that you use things as warnings to try to get our attention. Help us, Father, as Christians to point people toward your grace when they see wrathful things, that we can point them to refuge in Christ that you so love the world that you gave your only son so that those who have belief, faith, can experience eternal life and be protected from final judgment. Uh, But now as we look around us and we see so many things, Father, that are heartbreaking, that are difficult, 
We're reminded that you are wise, you are just, you are good, you are righteous. And if this puts a little bit of a lump in our throats, Lord, we're, we're thankful that we know Christ and that condemnation is not for us. Uh, anyone here this morning, Lord, who does not know that peace and that hope, I pray that they would before they leave. I pray that they would come to a point of conviction and reckoning with your grace so that they don't have to reckon with your judgment. As we close in the song, Lord, uh, may these truths resonate in our hearts so that we can carry them with us and may our lives be different as a result. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you stand, we'll close in a song together.